0: We're so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread his truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the word to resurrect among us so that heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, we will be getting into Luke chapter 6 today, and this is one that is filled with so many small little tidbits of, of truth that is going to um, nourish our souls if we let it. And I say if we let it because that is, that's kind of the, the formula of truth. And that's why Jesus oftentimes says, those with ears, let them hear, those um, with eyes to see, let them see. We know everybody has ears, we know everybody has eyes, but not everybody wants to receive what the Spirit is showing or what the Spirit is speaking. And so, truth is one of those things where it will only permeate in your soul to the level in which you want it to. Sometimes it gets to a level where you don't like it, and that's called conviction, and we push against that. And conviction is a telltale sign. Conviction is one of those things where you either accept it or you run from it. One of the two. And your response to that will determine how deep the truth of God will go in your soul. And Luke 6 is one of those um, passages, one of those chapters in Scripture. And it's one of the reasons why I love the book of Luke is how he writes is he's so simplistic. He just breaks things down for what it says. There's not a whole lot of depth to it, in the sense that you have to really study it super in-depth to be able to get what he's trying to say. Luke is very simple in how he writes, and it's why it's probably my favorite gospel of all of them, though they all have benefit. So we're going to get right into this, because it's going to take a while. My kind of my aim in this is to give you a bunch of tidbits for you to go and study. Um, It's it's to give you enough information where you kind of get the general idea of things. But you're going to have to go search these things out because I'm not going to be able to cover. What is it? 50 uh, right at 49 verses in about a 45 minute range. I'm not going to be able to cover it super in depth. So it's going to be up to you to take this podcast, take the things that you hear, that you learn and go and study it out. And so, we're going to get right into this in Luke chapter 6, verse 1. Um, If you've got your Bibles with me, then go ahead and turn to it. If you're able to um, otherwise listen and ingest and be able to just kind of chew on the things that are going to be spoken on. It says, "On, On a Sabbath, while he was going through the grain fields, his disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Okay, so on this one there is so much to break down. When you go back, um, as Jesus kind of took us back to David, there's this situation that goes on where David was on the run and he had some men with him and he comes into this, um, to this, you know, synagogue area where there's this priest and they're starving. They're hungry. They've been on the run. And the, You know, they asked to eat the showbread or the bread of the presence, okay? And the priest basically says, have your men been with women? Are your men holy? Are they able to eat of this? Are they worthy to eat of this? (coughs) Excuse me. David says, my men have not been with any women. Yes, we are able. So the priest then gives it to them. And there's this thing in which this showbread was was really only supposed to be for the priest to eat, okay? It's this bread that, um, you know, it's to be offered regularly. It was always to be fresh. It was this bread that was supposed to be offered to the priesthood. Um, for them to be able to eat and partake of. It was supposed to be set on the table of the presence. And, and here's what's interesting. I'm not going to go super in-depth in this. Let me just tell you there's a lot of spiritual foreshadow to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this. For one, Jesus is the bread of life, okay? And this bread, when broken down in Hebrew, you can find that it's, it's called the bread of the presence, or it can also be the bread of the face, all right? The bread of the Panaim. And that word for the Panaim is essentially the break of day upon my face, and it's something that heaven is trying to reveal to us that is manifest in this bread that when you partake of this bread you get life of heaven okay that's kind of what it's symbolic of representing and so you have this bread and this bread is to be placed on the table of the presence made of acacia wood which means sticks of wood okay so let me just break this down for you just real quick alright you have bread placed on wood for the priesthood to partake of Now hopefully the Spirit is working on you right now and you're being given eyes to see and ears to hear what the Spirit is saying. You have bread placed on wood for the priesthood to partake of. This is what it was symbolic of. And David, symbolic of Christ, who's also fulfilled in the symbolism of the bread, who was the bread of heaven, the manna from heaven, right? He's also fulfilled in the table of the presence in which that bread of heaven was placed on those sticks of wood, which is what acacia means. And the table of the presence was actually supposed to be made of acacia, commanded by God. All this is a foreshadowed to it. And so why do I bring all that stuff up? Well, I want you to see something real quick of what's being foreshadowed in this in First Peter chapter 2. He says this in verse 4, As you come to him a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, Peter referencing the church, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here's this illustration that we have in scripture in which you have bread being basically put on wood to be offered the, the life of heaven unto mankind and whoever comes into this priesthood is able to partake of that there's a symbolic representation which David um, unbeknownst to him as it even talks about in First Peter 1 where it says that the spirit of Christ who prophesied in the past in the days of old they didn't know what they were talking about but it was the spirit of Christ foreshadowing Christ in the future. And this might be a little bit deep for you and 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 it's difficult for me to go through this without going really, really in depth with you, but I'm wanting to give you those tidbits for you to go and study. And I want you to, to at least have maybe a semblance of an awakening to be able to see the revelation that's there and have this experience for yourself to say, whoa, I've never seen this before. This was a foreshadow of Christ. Okay? That's the main emphasis of this. The other one, you can find some tidbits of how. Um, the Pharisees looked at the Sabbath and made it something that was never intended to be. All right. It's actually written in Deuteronomy twenty three twenty five 25 that if you go through grain fields of another person, you are totally able to pick those grains and to be able to, to, um, to have food for yourself. All right. It was commanded. All right, I could go back and read it, but you can go back and read it yourself. It's Deuteronomy twenty three, twenty five. It was commanded that they could do that. You just can't store it. You can't steal from them in the sense that you're going to put it all in your pockets and take some for later. You can take some as you're walking through to sustain you for that moment. It was the same way with the vineyards in the previous verse. They did nothing wrong. What the Pharisees were saying is that they were rubbing them in their hands. And they considered that work. And as we know in Exodus 20, it says, you shall do no work on the Sabbath, but keep the day holy. So they had misconstrued that the Sabbath was something that was given to man as a day of rest for them. It was not supposed to be something to where you were, uh, how does Jesus put it, that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so I, I can understand why the Pharisees would get into this. In Numbers 15, you have a passage of this man who was gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And the people didn't know what to do with them, And so they took him to Moses and, and said, hey Moses, what do we do with this guy? We found him gathering sticks on the Sabbath. Moses didn't know what to do with him, so he took it to God. God said, kill him. Kill him. And you can go read it. Numbers 15. So I can understand why the Pharisees were taking this day so seriously. I don't, I don't want to try to give them a bad rap. They were trying to honor what they thought, but they, they misconstrued it and turned it into something that it was never intended to be. And I, I personally don't see anything that the disciples did that was against the Sabbath. This was something in the Pharisees' mind that they were trying to look for ways to condemn the disciples and ultimately to get Jesus. And so I could go in on on several things on this one, but I'm just going to leave it at that and just understand that we're going to get into some stuff on the very next part because I think Jesus is trying to make a point in regards to the Sabbath. And let me just be very clear. I don't believe the Sabbath day exists for us to keep as some holy commandment that was given through Torah to God's people. I believe that as Hebrews 4 talks about, Jesus is our Sabbath rest. He, it was all a spiritual foreshadow, as it talks about on the seventh day God rested, but then even in John, Jesus says that my father and I have been working until now. They never took a day off. It was a foreshadowed experience in which, or not experience, it was a foreshadowed day that was given to the people to ultimately foreshadow Jesus Christ and his coming and what would be our Sabbath rest, spiritually speaking. And what do I mean by that? In six days, God did all the work to bring about the life of heaven into man. Right? Six days, God created everything. He did all the work. There was nothing that man could do. Right? To bring about the life of God in them. There's nothing that they could do. God did all the work. And he created man. And then man gets to rest in what God created. In the same way, God did all the work by sending his son. And man, when he comes into Christ, gets to rest in what God accomplished. That's why in in 2 Corinthians 6.1 it says that this is the day of salvation. This is the seventh day. It's the rest that was prophesied from the beginning fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you are in Christ, then you are in that Sabbath rest. It is no longer a day to observe like some legalistic, regulatory day that we have to honor because God made a covenant with the Jews that no longer exists. We are in a new covenant. One that finds the spiritual fulfillment of those things of the old. So that's my take on it. Let's look at the next thing that Jesus is also trying to say. It says, On another Sabbath, you catch what he's trying to do here. He entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. So they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come, stand here. And he rose and stood there, and Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? And after looking around it, all he said to him, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand restored. Or, I'm sorry, his hand was restored. But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. What did Jesus do? He healed a man on a Sabbath. And they considered that work. And yet Jesus brings up another point in another gospel account where it says that if somebody's donkey gets trapped into a ditch on a Sabbath, the Pharisees would, hold, would help, would get the donkey out they would do it and think not anything of it. But if a man is trapped, if a man is, whether it's in his soul, emotionally, if he's got a withered hand, whatever, and Jesus helps to save him, you consider that wrong? Which is of greater value, the donkey or the man? And he's showing their hypocrisy and what they even believed on this, but I think he's making another point, and that is simply, as he said previously, Jesus is Lord Of the Sabbath. It's not the Sabbath doesn't serve him. Right? He's master over that. It's no longer about that. Jesus is above all. And as Ephesians 1 and 2 talks about. It says that God has placed all things under his feet. Because he has conquered death. Because he has done what no one else could do. God placed all things under his feet. And then guess where he placed us as the church? In him. In him. Seated at the right hand of the Father, as Ephesians 2 goes on to say. And that means that if everything is under his feet, and we are his hands and feet, the body of Christ, that means that it's under our feet too. It's no longer us who has to do the regulations of the Sabbath. We don't serve the Sabbath, we serve Jesus Christ, who is Lord of the Sabbath. And this is essentially what he's trying to state here to them. He says, guys, you're missing the boat. You're missing the boat on what this is all about. That Sabbath was only a foreshadow, a prophecy of my coming, in which I will fulfill. That's why it says in Matthew 11, Come to me, all you are weary and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. You see, the Sabbath was just rest for your body. Jesus says, I'm coming to bring you a spiritual rest for your soul and they missed the boat because they were so wrapped up in what they thought was true and how true is that for us today I've, I we uh used to go door to door as a ministry and uh we didn't you know do it like every weekend but um there was a period where we'd go probably twice twice a month somewhere in there and we'd go door to door just knock on doors talk to people and essentially our our aim was was to tell them about the gospel tell them about Jesus make sure they have a relationship with him And so we would do that, and one of the guys, he kind of began to be a Torah observer and definitely got kind of derailed um, in a lot of things. And I had one guy that was in charge of that, and he was just supposed to coordinate it. And I said, look, I'll be wherever you tell me to be. I'll go wherever you tell me to go, and I'll be with you every single time. You want to go out, I'll go out, so you know you've got me there with you. And so he was supposed to go and um, let everybody know what was going on and coordinated on. So he texted this guy and said, Hey, on Saturday, we're going to be going out to go door to door. Just tell people about Jesus. And his response was six days. You shall do work. A seventh day, you shall rest. And that was it. And by st- stating that he was saying, um, I'm not going because it would be unlawful. And I wasn't the one that was responding back to him. But I can tell you, and he wasn't really even part of our fellowship. He came to a Bible study every so often that we did. But I can tell you this. That kind of mentality is exactly what Jesus is condemning here. To say that you have to observe the Sabbath. And as such, you can't go out and tell people about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. You're missing the point. And that's what Jesus is trying to tell them. You're missing the point, guys. And so I'll let you guys study that a little bit longer. We're already about 16 minutes into this. So I need to keep going because there's a lot more stuff. But just understand, if you want a little bit more in-depth teaching on that one, go listen to the Hebrews 4 podcast that I did in which I talked about the Sabbath. And I talked about the, going into Romans 14 and talking about those who are weak in faith are the ones who still think we need to observe this regulation, regulatory day of rest. And it's not something to criticize somebody about. It's not something to judge them about. It's not something to condemn them because if they're doing it in honor of the Lord... You know, in honor of Christ, then so be it. Let them do it. That's fine. I don't have a problem with somebody doing it. But if you're doing it because that's what the law of Moses said. Well, then we have a problem. And you're weak in faith because you don't understand what the cross has actually purchased. And I would encourage you to go read Ephesians 2. To go find that the law of commandments expressed through ordinances has been abolished. In Christ. And so you could go a little bit in depth and listen to that in Hebrews chapter 4. If you're um, curious about that, want to know more information. Otherwise, I want to keep going on in this. It says in verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. That fascinates me. Now, I don't know what your prayer life is like, but I can tell you that I've never prayed like that. I've had times in which I've continued all night in um, prayer, fellowship, and study, I can tell you that I've had times in which we've had men's retreats and we've stayed up all night. Worshiping, praying, fellowshipping, and studying. Confessing. I mean, we just stayed up all night together and kept our minds focused on all things Christ. We've had, I've had moments like that, but I've never had times in which I stayed up all night praying. And Jesus did. And this wasn't the first occurrence. It talks about that numerous amount of times in the Gospels. So let me just ask you, it's like, what are we missing in our prayer life that would cause Jesus to desire to stay up all night and talk and commune with His Father? But we don't. We're too tired from our worldly lives. We're too tired from our worldly events. We're too tired even maybe even from our ministries. We're too tired. We're spent... And let me just tell you, Jesus probably worked harder than any pastor today. He probably worked harder than any secular, worldly person today who works 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I guarantee you Jesus worked harder than all of them. And yet somehow he still had this overwhelming urge and desire and ability to stay up all night praying to his Father. Man, what are we missing? What are we missing as to why we don't desire and do that, because desire is only half the battle. We can desire all we want to, but our job is to not just desire the things of God; is to pursue them and seek them and do them. To not just be hearers, but doers. And it has just always struck me because I look at myself and I, th- I think, why, why don't I? Why haven't I ever done that? If First John two six tells us. That anyone who says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way which he did. Well, this is part of how Jesus walked. And what it shows me is that in myself and as, as, as the church, at least in America, I don't know how things are overseas, but at least in America, we got a lot of work to do. As we're going to find out in verse 40, it's possible to get to be like Jesus. I've heard teachings who say, no, 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 Jesus, um, he, he was God in the flesh. And so because that he had an advantage over us, despite what Hebrews chapter 2 and 4 say, where it says that he was made like us in every respect and therefore had no advantage over us in any regard. Um, so, but because Jesus was like that, because he was God, we could never be like him. I'm going to argue with that. Because I'm, I believe scripture teaches the exact opposite. And we'll get into that in a little bit. Going on in verse 13, it says, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. Now, this is interesting, too, because all of his disciples were with him. I don't think that there was a lot, but I, there was more than twelve. And it says that Jesus chose from the twelve, or from his disciples, he chose from them twelve. And he said, You're going to be apostles, you're going to be leaders over my disciples. And here's why it's significant to me. I grew up in a, in a system, in a Baptist um, church, in which the people got to determine who were the leaders. They would have a search committee, and, and the search committee would bring in, you know, have a several handful of names, or maybe more, maybe less. And they would bring them in in view of a call, and, and they would give a sermon, and then the people would vote if they wanted that to be their pastor. Let me just tell you, that's actually very incorrect. That's more in line with America's democracy, not God's word. Because let me just tell you, Jesus appoints leaders. And those leaders who have been appointed, they appoint leaders. You don't ever find the people appointing leaders. You can see in Acts 6 that there are people who are recommended. That they might say, hey, choose from among yourselves some men who we will then look at and determine whether we will appoint them into leadership. To see if they're full of the Spirit. To see if they're full of grace. To see if they're full of love. To see if they have the the needed requirements to be in leadership. Let me just tell you, Jesus appoints leaders who appoint leaders. It never, ever, ever flows upwards. Ever. Jesus appoints leaders who appoint leaders. It is not Jesus appoints leaders who then consult the flock to see who they want to appoint as a leader and then give them the power to do so. Jesus appoints leaders who appoint leaders. And he goes on, he lists their names, you can read their names, you know, Simon named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon who was called the Zealot, Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot who became a traitor. Jesus chose these 12 to be his closest followers, including Judas, who had a purpose in all of this. And going on in 17 through 19 it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all of Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured and all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. And so you can just imagine this scene of what's going on. It's pretty self-explanatory, nothing really to break down on that. You just see this large crowd of, of a multitude of people, some of them being his disciples. And they were all following him, seeking to get from Jesus something that would benefit them. And I think that there's a lot of people who do that today. And I'm not saying that that's necessarily wrong. I think it's wrong if you stay in that place. If it's always about what Jesus can do for you and not what you can do for him and his church, then you're wrong. Oftentimes in our infantile state, you, you think about it with an infant. I, I've had the, the privilege and the blessing to be able to have 10 infants that I have been given charge over to care for. God is, is, has, I don't know if he's done filling our quiver yet or not, but um, the point is, is he's had control To put as many arrows in that quiver as what he wanted. Not what I wanted. Because if it was what I wanted, I would have stopped at one. Because that's what I told my wife. After about a month or two of having our firstborn, I had said I wanted two. She said she wanted six. After having the first month in which it was really difficult and it was really sacrificial to my flesh. In which it was less sleep, all that various stuff. um, I went down to one. I said, I'm done. I don't want any more. And she went down to three, which was a big thing. She said, I only want three now. One has been so hard. But then as we grew closer to God and we began to realize that God's heart is for children. God wants his family to be large. God says, I desire all people to be saved and come to knowledge of the truth. I want to fill my house as full as I can. I want kids because I love kids. And I began to see God's heart. And I began to realize that my heart wasn't in line with his. When I'm trying to determine I only want one. Or I only want two. Or I only want three. I'm, I'm three and I'm done. God's heart was for more. So I had to admit my heart wasn't in line with his. And as I began to grow closer to his heart. God began to grow my heart. In understanding that I need to relinquish control in all things to him. And I say all that stuff to to, to get you to realize. That I've had the privilege of having ten kids. that have That have been in the stage of being an infant. And you know what I've learned? I've learned that when a child is an infant, they are extremely needy. Some of you parents, if not all of you, can relate to that. An infant, when they want to eat, oh, they'll let you know. When they've got a dirty diaper, oh, they'll let you know. When they want something, they will let you know. And my point in all of this is to to basically uh, say that infants are very selfish. Infants are very needy. And when you look at some of what Jesus is teaching here, and you look at this, you're going to realize that there's various levels of following Him. But the infantile stage, as 1 Corinthians 3, 3 talks about, 1 through 3, is the one in which they're fleshly. And we're going to learn something here in just a little bit as we go into this in 20 through 26 about the distinction or the difference between a follower of Christ and someone who's only in it to get what they want. Remember we talked about, um, you know, just a few minutes ago that the people who were following him, they were only doing so to get what they wanted. They had an issue, they wanted Jesus to solve it, and so they followed him until he did. But at some point, we have to put that aside and start following Him because He's worthy at the expense of what we want. In fact, Galatians 5.24 says that those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified their flesh with His desires and passions. At some point in your life, if that has never happened, then you have never started following Him, not even in the smallest degree. You have to renounce yourself, your wants, and your desires in order to... To even begin following him. If you haven't done that. Then you haven't even started. And you're still just part of the multitudes. Who are only going after Jesus. For what you can get. And so going on. We're going to see how the spirit is opposed to the flesh. He says in verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples. And said. Notice he's speaking to his disciples. Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Now, this is a fascinating um, breakdown of the Beatitudes. Okay, you could go into Matthew chapter 5 and find a very similar thing, but just more um, expanded. This is just kind of a microcosm of that, but it is so, so simple. You look at, at the inverse of what he's about to say. and We're going to read that, and I'm going to break this down just briefly for you. He says, But woe to you who are rich! For you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets." What is Jesus, what is he trying to state here? What is, what is he trying to bring about? And I don't want to tell you, it's, it's the difference between the flesh and the spirit, between the world and between heaven. He's showing that the agenda of a, of a person who is spirit-filled and is on mission for heaven's mission and heaven's agenda will be in stark contrast to the person who is fleshly and worldly. It's all about where your, your ambition is, where your purpose is, where your aim is. Is your aim to be filled up in this world? He says, then that's going to be your consolation. You will not inherit the kingdom of God. Is your aim to, to have your best life now? Then you're going to forfeit the life in the future. What does Jesus say in Matthew? And he says, uh, what does the profit of man to gain the whole world but to forfeit or lose his soul? Jesus is very... Point blank saying, if you want to live for this world, then go ahead, live for this world, but you will not get any treasures in heaven. You will not get any, even, um, even a foothold in heaven. But if you're choosing to relinquish the things of this world, including yourself, your own dreams and ambitions and wants and desires, if you're willing to lay those on the cross and willing to say, God, you, you have sent Christ to redeem me and to sanctify me and to, to do what only he could do and through him is the only avenue that I have to get to you. I will give him my life. He says, then you'll find life. That's why Luke 9, 23 through 24 says... <clears throat> Uh, If anyone wants to come after me, he must deny himself and pick up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would save his life, he will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my name's sake will save it. He says, if you want to live for the things of this world and be like the, the people of this world, then you can't be like heaven and you won't get in. You know, there's the passage where he says, blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. We'll break that one down just as an example. In James two five, it says, has God not chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? Let me just say that again. Has God not chosen <clears throat> those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith? If you're looking to live it up in this world... If you're, if you're wanting the nicest cars... If you're wanting the nicest houses... you want the nicest clothes... And you want to live it up... And you think that God's blessing you to do so... Let me just tell you... You are deceived by the God of this world... That is not the gospel... I, I was talking to my kids this morning... About a message we heard a couple years ago... By a guy that was a supposed evangelist... I would call him more of a false prophet... Because he didn't teach correctly the word of God... Um, but his opening address to all of us in this in this sanctuary area was that God wants you to be wealthy. He wasn't talking about in spirit. He wasn't talking about proverbially. He wasn't talking about spiritually. He was talking about physically and monetarily. He says that God wants you to be wealthy. He wants you to have money because he can't use you unless you've got money. And I'm sitting there like, Does this cat even know scripture? Has he even studied the life of Jesus? Has he even studied the life of the apostles? Has he even studied the life of the first church? Because what he just said does not coincide with any of their lives. God has chosen those who are poor in this world who choose to relinquish their claim on this world to get what they want out of it and instead are more so focused on letting God get out of them what he wants. God has chosen those who are poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. Go read James 2.5. That's what he says. What does he say? Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. And then he goes on and he says in the, in the inverse of it, But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. He says, you won't get the kingdom of God. You're going to get this world. That's your domain. That's what you wanted to live for. That's what you're going to get. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. He says, look, if you're hungry for the things of heaven, you will be satisfied. But if you're hungry for the things of earth, then your palate will not receive the things of heaven. And so you see the distinctions, the parallels, and the opposites that he's trying to compare against each other. And one of them being, he says, if everybody loves you in this life, whether they're a believer or not. If everybody just looked, oh man, I just love this person so much. Yeah, 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 I'm not a Christian and I don't believe in what they're saying, but I just love being around them. Let me just tell you, you're not following Jesus because John 15 says that I called you out of this world to live like heaven. And as such, the world will hate you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Go read it in John 15, I believe it starts in around 15 through 20, somewhere in that range. He says, guys, you're not supposed to look like the world. So if the world loves you as its own, if you're refusing to call out sin, if you're refusing to take stands, if you're refusing and you're just saying, no, we're just going to love them where they're at because that's what Jesus would do. No, I'm sorry. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus called people out on the table. Jesus called out their sin. Jesus didn't just meet with people and just say, oh, I'm just going to go dine with you and never bring up your sin. Luke 5.32 says that Jesus met with people so that he could bring them to repentance. To call sinners to repentance. He he was not okay with just condoning and tolerating people's sin as a way of just being patient with them and loving them. Go study the life of Jesus because you won't find that at all. Jesus called people sin on the mat. And he said, we got to deal with this. Because I love you. We will deal with this. And I'm going to call it out so that you can change and have a good relationship with me and the Father. And if you're going to live that kind of life, then yes, people who don't want to repent will hate you. They will revile you. They will exclude you. They will spurn your name as evil on the account of the Son of Man. Who, by the way, is the way, the truth, and the life. That means that you're calling people out in truth. They're going to hate you on account of the Son of Man. But you know what? That's what they did to the prophets. The people of God hated the prophets because they called their sin out on a mat and they said, we got to deal with this. The false prophets though, man, they loved them because they told people what they wanted to hear. So it must not be with those who follow Jesus Christ. Some things you can go read, Second Timothy three twelve anyone who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. I brought up John fifteen, James two five. You can look at first Timothy six, eighteen through nineteen when he talks about the rich in this present age. He says, Charge them not to be haughty, not to be this, not to be that and he says, And tell them to store up treasures in heaven so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. He says everybody has a starting place. You might have wealth. But if you want to begin to grow into the image of Jesus Christ, you're going to start doing what the early church did of selling your possessions and giving to the needy. You're going to do what Zacchaeus did whenever he gave half of his treasures to the poor and then he repaid everybody back four times the amount that he had. And Jesus says, Today, I tell you, salvation's come to this house because there's been fruit and evidence that he gets it. He understands that the poor in this world will be rich in faith. You can go research Peter Waldo, who did that very thing. You can go research C.T. Studd. There's been... Saint after saint after saint after saint, saint who, when they get it, they understand, they take hold of what is truly life and let go of this life, of what they can get from it. This is the gospel. This is Christianity. Whether you like it or whether you don't, this is what it is. And so I'll let you go research that. You can find a similar message in 1 Corinthians 7 29 through 31, where he has this exact same thing, where Paul writes, but I'm going to go on and I'm going to speak a little bit more about this topic and really try to finish this up quickly. He says, "What I say to you, he says again, he says, the world's going to tell you to live a certain way. Your flesh is going to tell you to live a certain way. But the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other as, Gal- as Galatians five sixteen through 17 says. He says, walk by the spirit. You won't gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh and the spirit are opposed to each other to keep you from doing what the other one wants you to do. Meaning, the flesh wants you to live a certain way, the Spirit says, I want you to live a different way. Totally opposite. He says, but I say to you, who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. Let me ask you, is that, is that the American way? Just, just something to think about, those of you who are listening from America, let me just ask you, is that the American way to love your enemies? To do good to those who hate you? Is that, is that how we treated the Japanese fighter pilots at, at Pearl Harbor? Oh man, I might have just stepped on some toes there. Where we chose to drop a bomb and kill hundreds of thousands of our enemies? Was that love? Nope. Nor was it in the image of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, you can do some research and you can find that that bomb was dropped and eradicated Christianity. From Nagasaki. Something that the Japanese government had been trying to do for like two to four hundred years and could never do. America did that in a single moment with the atomic bomb that was dropped there when they killed hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people, including Christians. Was that loving? Was that fulfilling what Jesus says by love your enemies? And you can go into Romans 12 and find the exact same message? Nope. Therefore, it wasn't Christ-like. It wasn't Christianity. As much as we want to say that it was in the name of God. I'm sorry, if you're not doing it in the name of Christ, you're not doing it in the name of God because I can tell you Cornelius and Lydia were two people who said that they feared God and served God, but they weren't saved because they didn't come under the name of Jesus Christ. Because until they did, they did not have salvation. We can say things are under God all we want to, but if it's not in the expressed image of Jesus Christ, then it doesn't have his approval because God has given all things into his hands. Sorry, that's a hot topic for me because I see the deception Satan has cloaked many people's eyes with to think that this land has ever been a Christian nation. He goes on and he says, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to one who strikes you on the cheek, to one who bombs Pearl Harbor, drop an atomic bomb on them no he says offer the other also and from one who takes away your cloak do not withhold your tunic either what was Jesus' message on the cross from those who struck him father forgive them Is that, Yeah, I'm pretty sure that's what he said wasn't it forgive them for they know not what they do now one day that recompense will come one day Jesus comes back that recompense will come but that's never ours to give He goes on, he says, give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. Don't, yeah, I'm not saying you can't ask for them back. Like, hey, brother, you took this from me. You want to give that back? He says, don't demand for them back. Don't go up to them and say, oh, you know, like for instance, somebody borrows 500 bucks from you. Right? They say, I'll pay you back. A month later goes by and you go up to that person and say, Hey, do you, do you have that $500 you borrowed from me that you say you're going to give back? I got some bills coming up. You know, we're going to kind of need that money. If they say, no, I, I don't have it. I, I don't think I'll be able to pay that back. Don't start demanding for them to pay it back. It's not wrong to ask them. But the word here is to demand. He says, and as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. He says, look, if you're giving it with the sole intent of saying, I'm either going to get back what I gave or I'm going to get interest back from that. He says, you got the wrong motivation. That's not the imitation. That's not the, the example that was been set for us. He says, look, if you get back the same amount, okay, so be it. If a person is going to hold to the word and say, hey, I'm going to pay this back, then yeah, I mean, I think there's an element to that. We need to hold them to their word on what they said. But if you're only given it to make a profit or to get something out of them for it, something's wrong with that. He says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the most high. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. Pretty self-explanatory. This is our example. Because Christ gave us the example of God's mercy on a cross of a man who didn't deserve it and did it on our account by his stripes, we were made whole. As 1 Peter 2 says, that's our example who cares if it's fair who cares if if you know you're not getting back the exact same amount who cares your treasures in heaven right oh how many people prove that their heart is actually here on earth because where your heart is there your treasure will be also luke 12:34 he says judge not and you will not be judged oh famous verse that many people use today you see we shouldn't ever judge well, let's just go on and read the context of the passage. He says, condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. See the condition and all this? Give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put in your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. So here's Jesus' point. If you're unwilling to forgive a brother, then he's unwilling to forgive you. If, you're, if you are just about judging people um, and you're not willing to allow the Spirit to judge you, There's going to be problems. If you're just about going out to condemn people, but you aren't letting the Spirit kind of work in you and bring conviction to you and even bring condemnation, and I know a lot of people are quoting that Romans 8, 1 verse right now. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I would encourage you to finish that verse as you look in your footnote or if you're using the King James Version, it's going to say for those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. I'm going to tell you three different times in which Scripture teaches that a person who is in Christ can actually find themselves under condemnation. First Timothy 5, where you talking about widows who abandon their former commitment of celibacy, and they choose to abandon that and stray after Satan. And they go off, and it says, and so incur condemnation. It says that Peter um, stood condemned whenever Paul called him out because he was treated the Gentiles differently than the Jews. And you're going to find in, I believe it's in James chapter 4, where it says that let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's understand the whole context of everything. Yes, a Christian who chooses to walk in the flesh can find themselves in condemnation. But if you're going to walk according to the Spirit, well then the spiritual person judges all things and is himself to be judged by no one. If you walk in the Spirit, as He is in the Spirit, then He will not be brought under condemnation. It's a very simple premise. And He says, for the same measure you use, it's going to be measured back to you. If you don't want to forgive, He won't forgive you. Oh, wow! Isn't that a new, a new thing today that we don't hear very often? And yet it's written. He also told them a parable. Can a blind man lead a blind man? And this goes into what we're talking about in this whole judge not lest you be judged passage. Because let me just tell you real quick, 1 Corinthians 5 tells us that we are to judge those inside the church. We are even to judge those who are outside the church. We're just not supposed to do some condemnatory sentence on them of discipline. That's not our place. Only those inside the church are we to discipline. And he says here, <clears throat> um, Can a blind man lead a blind man? Will they, will they not both fall into a pit? A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who is fully trained will be like his teacher. I'm going to finish this and come back to that in just a second and hopefully wrap this up really quickly. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? This is going back into the judge not, you will not be judged. He says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, brother, let me take the speck out of your own eye. When you yourself do not see the log that is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First... Take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck that is in your brother's eye. Now I hate it when people use this this verse of judge not lest you be judged as if that was it. Jesus isn't stopping the verse there. He says, look, it would be wrong for you to judge somebody else when you've got a log sitting in your own eye that you're unwilling to deal with. That would be wrong. That would be hypocritical. He says, first... Remove the log out of your own eyes so that you can see clearly to then judge your brother. I think sometimes we, we misconstrue what the word judge is. To judge simply means to be a fruit inspector. That, that's literally the definition that you're going to find there. To be a fruit inspector. When you go into the root of, I believe it's Crino that's used there. Um, it means to be a fruit inspector. All you're doing is looking at the fruit. You're looking at the fruit of a person's life and you're matching it up to what a healthy fruit tree should look like and you're saying, this ain't matching up. Something's wrong. And that's healthy to do. We're actually commanded to do it. But we can't do it when we don't have a healthy fruit tree ourselves, and we're okay with being an unhealthy fruit tree. But then we expect everyone else to be healthy. He says that's hypocritical. first, Get your tree healthy. Make sure you know what the standard of a healthy tree looks like. And then in love, hold everybody to that. It's actually commanded. Now this whole concept of a disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone who's fully trained will be like his teacher. I said we'd get to this. I'm just going to briefly touch on this one because I feel like I talk about this almost every single time because I see the heresy that's out in the church today. You will never surpass Jesus. He is perfection. Perfection. You will never, ever surpass the teacher. You can't. It's impossible. Because he is perfection. But he does say here, that when you're fully trained, you can be like the teacher. Now a lot of people take issue with that because they think that somehow that's heretical. Well, I think it's heretical to say otherwise. First John two six, we talked about it. It says, "If anyone abides in Christ, he ought to walk in the same way in which he walked." In fact, that word "ought" is "ophilio" in the Greek, and it means it is your duty and it is commanded. It is a mission that he sets you on, not a not a um, a request. He says, "You ought to." You are commanded to look like him. What Hebrews twelve one through two is talking about? He set the bar of the faith at the highest level, and he says, "Now I want you to go, strive after, to attain it. I want you to run." Ephesians 4 talks about it, that we as the body, that God puts leaders in the church so that we can grow into the full stature, the measure of Christ. The, the perfect man, it even says, teleos, the Greek word that's used there, it says, to the perfect man of Jesus Christ. He says, I want you to go look like him. James 1, 2 through 2-4, count it all joy, my brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, we know the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its work in you. So that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You know who else was lacking in nothing was also perfect and complete? Jesus. And he says the way that you're going to get there is through trials, through suffering. You could go into First Timothy chapter four, where it says, "Train yourself for godliness." Godliness is to be godlike. He says, "I want you to go look like God." And who was the ex- expressed image of the character of God in the flesh? Jesus. He says, and if you aren't going to go do that, you're refusing what God has commanded. Go read First Timothy chapter 4. First Thessalonians 4, 3-8 talks about that this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you, your holiness, that you would be holy in all of your conduct. You could say sanctification, but the Greek word hagios is used there, and it means holiness. He says, I want you in all of your conduct to be set apart perfectly as Jesus Christ was set apart. And in verse 8 he goes on he says, Therefore, whoever resists this resists not man but God. Who gave his Holy Spirit to you. So that you could accomplish. What God wants you to do. This whole concept. Of that we could never look like Jesus. on this life. It's the teachings of man. To seduce people. Into thinking they don't have to continue. To strive for holiness. And as Hebrews 12. 14 and 15 says. Strive for peace and for holiness. Without which no one will see the Lord. Our job in this life. Is to look like Jesus Christ. And it is possible. But you will have to be trained. Therefore. If Satan is a wise, crafty little booger, then he's going to try to get you to stop training for godliness by making you think you don't really have to. Well, I'm here to tell you otherwise because the Word of God says otherwise. So we talked about the judging thing. We talked about that thing. And I said that judging is uh, to be a fruit inspector. Listen to what the next passage says. For no good tree bears bad fruit nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit, for each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of the evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Isn't that interesting that right after he talks about this whole concept of judging, he brings up the passage of fruit. And he says, look, I'm going to be able to tell if you have a good walk with God. And I'm going to be able to tell if you have a bad one. And if you have a bad one, I'm going to call you out on it. I'm going to judge it. And this isn't just something that he is commissioning for only Jesus to be able to do. It's echoed all throughout Scripture. That we as the church are supposed to be doing it as well. Then he goes on and says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my word and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when the flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream uh, broke against it, immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great. This is simple. Why do we judge? Why do we try to say, here's the standard. We need to go raise up to that standard. We need to make make sure that our tree is good. We need to make sure that our tree is healthy. And that is seeking to imitate the healthiest tree that we've ever seen. The, The tree of perfection, if you will. Why do we do that? It's so that when people build their life on the word of God. Of what they're supposed to be doing. That they will not fall when things get hard in their life if your life is not founded on the word of God, if your life is not seeking to imitate the person of Jesus Christ, then when those trials come, you will fall. And sometimes you're going to fall hard. What is your aim in life? Is your aim in life to get everything out of it that you want? Is your aim in life to live according to how you want that you'll do the things of God only so much as they benefit you? Was your aim in life to glorify the person of Jesus Christ and to build your life upon His Word to say I will do whatever you say I will go wherever you tell me to go you are Lord of my life and I will give you the reins in every area of my life because you are worthy As Jesus says, if that's not your ambition, then why do you call him Lord, Lord, and not do what he tells you? This is the message of chapter 6. And I hope you receive it. Y'all be blessed.